At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the Gospel. Well, just like the story you saw this morning, I think Daniel's life asks us a pretty important question about our own lives, and that question is, what story is your life telling? What story is your life telling when, when people who don't know Jesus get around you, when they meet you, when they, when they spend time with you, when they observe your way of life, when they, when they hang out with you, when they get to know you just a little bit better, even maybe when they view your own social media, what do they say is the story of your life? What, what do they observe about your life? What story are you telling in the way you live? Well, I want to jump right into to the big idea this morning of the text here, and that's the, the reality that your life is telling a story. Your life is a witness. The way you live your life, the way you engage with other people, the way that you, that you walk, the way that you think, the way that you serve, all of it is a testimony. It is a declaration of someone and something. Your life is a witness. And so the big question is, what story are you telling what witness are you bearing? What testimony are you declaring in the world? I know that's a big premise to think about. Your life is a witness, and so every moment of your life, every, every waking moment, every sleeping moment, every act of leisure, every act of work, everything in between, everything communicates something. And that's a big deal to think about everything communicating something and everything telling a story. But is that true? Is everything, every part of our life bearing witness? Maybe the better question is this, is if that's true, and since that's true, what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus? I mean, what does that look like for us if we're really bearing witness with our lives? How do we make sure that our life is a distinctly Christian witness? That our lives, the story that we're telling, the testimony that we're giving is a distinctly Christian story, a distinctly Christian witness uh, you may know the phrase, I think it's a pretty big Christian cliche out there, that Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's, that's our, our identity as we live in this world, that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And yet, what does that really look like? How do we really do that well? How do we grow in that? Well, we're in this series called Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. And we've been looking at the first two chapters of Peter's letter to the exiled and scattered churches. And here at this point in his letter, in verses 11 and 12, he begins a transition. The letter now moves from talking about identity and who we are and the great salvation that we have in Christ to moving into talking to us about how we live because of that identity. Because of what Christ has done for us, because of his mercy and grace and goodness to us, now how do we live distinctly in the world? And so the next several weeks, we're going to unpack the rest of chapter two and deal with the practical implications for us of who we are and how we now live in the midst of this world together. And Peter here makes two points in these two verses this morning about how we live distinctly. He's going to talk to us about how we live and how we view ourselves personally, but then how we live out in the world and how we address and share the testimony of our lives with those who may not know Christ. And so I want to just 
unpack these two verses for us this morning, verse 11 and 12, and help us see that our life is our witness. And how we live communicates something very deeply. And so the question is, are we living a distinctly Christian witness? Are we living a distinctly Christian story? Uh, To do that, and how we live distinctly in the world but not of the world, Peter directs us to two things. First of all, he says, we must win the battle within. That we must win the battle within. Here we go in verse 11. Uh, I love how Peter begins to talk about these things. Again, he doesn't just throw out the command, but he addresses us in regards to who we are. It's a command that's based on an identity. That's the order of the gospel. We have been rescued by Jesus. We have been saved from our sins by his blood. First and foremost, God's grace is where things start for us. And then as a result of that, we walk in a new life. We become new people. So don't get the order out of order. It's not we do good things, we shape up, we clean up, and then God loves us. But no, it's he loves us first, and then he transforms us to live in a distinct way. And so he talks about, Peter once again, talks about our identity. Here is what he says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now there's three statements of identity right there. First of all, Peter reminds us that we are beloved. Now he's not just saying, hey, you're my good friends. He is re- uh, redirecting us back to Christ himself. He is, he is reorienting us in relationship with God through the mercies of God in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross. By the grace of God, you who have walked with Jesus, who have believed and trusted in him, you are beloved. That today, no matter what your week has been like, no, no matter what you have done successfully and righteously or where you have failed, And wandered. If you are in Christ, if you are trusted, if you have trusted Christ, you, in the eyes of the Father, are beloved. You're accepted. You're loved. That's a great place for us to stand with security, to know that whatever command might come, whatever God might direct us to do or to give up or to walk in, however hard that might be, to know fundamentally at the core, we in Christ are loved. Do you know that identity over you this morning? That God in his mercy and grace, adopting you into his family as his child, sees you with full delight. He sees you with his son, Jesus, and he smiles upon you and says, I love you. I've removed all of your sins. You are my precious, beloved child. Brothers and sisters, as we live in this world, but not of this world, We cannot forget or escape, nor should we ignore the identity of God's love for us. We need this identity to be the controlling identity for us. That as we live and walk in a world that's hostile to us, to know we are loved by the Father. To live and walk in a world that may hate us, to know that we are accepted by God. To stop seeking approval from the world, knowing that we have the approval of the Father. Brothers and sisters, rest in that identity that we are loved by God, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. This is what Paul says in Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you who may be far off here this morning, who have not come to Christ and believed and trusted in him, this invitation is open for you as well, to come to Christ, 
to turn from your sins and embrace Jesus based on his work for you, his life that's perfect and sinless, his death on the cross on your behalf for your sins, and his resurrection on the third day so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Come to the Father today. Come to Christ and experience and know the new identity of being beloved, being accepted and approved. So that's where Peter starts for us in identity. In the world but not of the world means that we are beloved. God loves us. But then he has a couple other statements of identity there in the uh, later parts of the verse here. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now Peter wants to orient us to the world in which we live. To be in the world but not of the world means we have a distinct view and a distinct opinion and relationship with the world itself. Peter here is writing to a church that has been dispersed and scattered. Some scholars believe that Peter is writing to a group of Christians that were actually deported from Rome. The Roman emperors had a practice of every once in a while kicking out of the city anybody they viewed as a foreigner or a threat to Roman power, Roman authority, the Caesar's glory. It seems like that was likely in the context of what Peter was writing. This group of Christians, verse 1 of chapter 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Seems like this group of Christians was deported out of Rome. They were refugees, exiles. And he says, that's, that's your identity in this world. That's how you are to see yourself in the world. You are sojourners or pilgrims, travelers, and you're exiles. What Peter is saying here fundamentally is this world is not your home. He's speaking of our spiritual standing in this world. We, we, are, we are not residents and citizens first and foremost, of this place and this time and this world. Our eternity isn't here. But in light of the world, we are strangers. We are aliens. We are exiles, outcasts even, of our own society and our own place. One scholar says it this way. She says, the force of the comparison derives from the observation that foreigners in the ancient world, whether in residence or just passing through, did not fully participate in the customs and practices of the host culture. To be a sojourner or an exile in a distinct and different culture meant you didn't practice the things of the culture. You didn't live in the ways of the culture. Your practices and customs, your way was different or distinct. And that's what Peter is getting at here for us, for identity. In this world, we are distinct from the world. It's not our home. It's not our, our forever home. While we may bear citizenship in a nation here, we don't bear eternal citizenship here. So we're not going to be loved. We're not going to be fully accepted. We're not going to be always welcomed. This identity is really important for us to see. We are loved by God, and yet here in this world, we really can't put down roots. We, we can't establish ourselves deeply. Now, here's what Peter's saying about our identity. He wants us to see, okay, he's going to command us and how we live, but that's out of who we are. In relationship with God, loved. Beloved by the Father. In relationship to this world, we're just passing through. Strangers, exiles, aliens, outcast. So notice here what Peter says about how we live in the midst of that based on who we are. Because of who we are, he says, I urge you. And I feel that same urgency myself this morning. He says, I entreat you. I plead with you. Speaking, speaking broadly about our church and, and friends, we have to deeply consider how we are living here in this world. 
in this moment in our culture and our time. As Peter would say, I urge you. So I would say, I urge you to think about the story that we are telling with our lives here and now in this world. What is it? We have to listen to the Spirit of God more than the voices of our culture. And so what does Peter command here? What is, what is from God about how we are to live in this world even though we are strangers and exiles apart from this world? He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so here's where Peter directs the battle inwardly. We must win the battle internally. Now notice here what he says, I urge you to abstain. The idea of abstaining is to refrain from, to not participate in, to stop. This is something that we should not indulge. What's he talking about? What should we abstain from? He says, the passions of the flesh. If you've ever gotten sick, your body will know that there's something foreign inside your body, some, some virus or bacteria, and your body will begin to go and attack that virus, that bacteria. And so he's saying here in the same way, like, think about internally what's going on in your body. Think about what's going on in your soul. There are passions and desires, passions of the flesh, and they are going to war against you. So you must go to war against them. Flesh here is what Paul describes as our sinful nature. Peter says it's the passions of the flesh. Paul says it's our sinful nature. and He describes it in a couple ways. Romans 13, 14, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Peter and Paul are walking arm in, arm in step together about this. The fleshly nature, the passions of the flesh need to be put away, put aside, abstained from. Or consider Galatians 5.24 where Paul says those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I mean, we're talking about putting to death something within us. What does he mean? What is he talking about there? What are these passions of the flesh? Well, I would take you over to Galatians chapter 5. It's a great passage where Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. Before, but before he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, he speaks about the fruit of the flesh. What are these desires of the flesh that we are to abstain from or to go to war against? Here's what Paul says. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul goes so far to say, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What a list here. I mean, what a comprehensive scope of what, about what the passions of the flesh are. Not just sexual immorality, but fits of anger, div divisiveness, dissensions, strife. Malice, which is hatred. I mean, Peter and Paul are thinking here very scripturally about how we live and saying there is a distinct way about the way that we live from the world. The passions of the flesh go along with the ways of the world. I mean, it's a, it's a no holds bar, just move forward with the waves of this world. These are the things that scripture says we are to abstain from, that we are to put down, that we are to cease from. So where there's where there's drunkenness in your life, the 
abstain. Stop. Go to war against that. Where there's idolatry in your life, where you love someone or something more than anything else, more than Christ himself. Repent. Put it down. Go to war against it. Where there's jealousy in your heart over your brother or your sister or someone else, go to war against it. Put it down. Where there's hatred towards image bearers of God, which is all humanity, by the way. Put it down. Abstain from these passions. When I think about these passions, these passions here that Peter speaks about are desires. They're, they're hungry monsters within our hearts and our souls that need to be fed. And that's how he's envisioning it. Because waging war is the desire to starve out these passions, to put them down. Our desires want to dominate. They want to overpower so Christians, we must see that our life is a consistent battle internally, within, to put to death what is fleshly, the old sin nature, and to put on Christ's likeness. And the way to fight is to abstain, it's to hold back. We don't feed these desires. It's like taking a starvation diet against our flesh. If drunkenness is an entrenching sin in your life, don't go to the bottle. Are you taking in are you feeding your flesh? Are you giving yourselves to making sure that these things are growing within you? Or are you starving them out? I could list just a few ways. Are you taking in steady diets of news media? The culture just bombarding you with hatred and anger and fury and concern and worry. It feeds your flesh. Are you taking in diets of steady diets of, of visual sensuality, pornography? The sexual immorality, those visual diets feed the flesh. They don't help you abstain, they just feed it all the more. Are you taking in steady diets of idol worship, of politicians or celebrities, or of wealth and power and security? Those steady diets don't kill the flesh, they feed the flesh. They fuel it, they bring it up, they make it all the harder to fight. So Peter here is helping us. He's saying if you're going to live distinctly in the world, you must be distinct by putting to death what is fleshly among you, by going to war to abstain from those things. And that's a dis different life. It's a distinct life. Now think about the people that, that put to death those sins. Think about people who go to war against them. You, you might think, well, they're just narrow and no fun and just, just boring people but they're a distinct life for God's sake, for the glory of Christ. Putting to death the flesh means that we are set apart to God. That we would say in this life, for God's glory, I want to be a new creature. I want to be a new creation. Christ-likeness is a beautiful thing. I mean, that's what Paul contrasts in Galatians 5. So he says, put to death the deeds or the works of the flesh, like sensuality and idolatry and malice and jealousy, Take up the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Against these things, there's no law. They're righteous. They're good things. So if you're going to live a distinctly Christian life, a, a life that tells a better story in this world... You've got to put off the deeds of the flesh, abstain from feeding those desires of the flesh, and pursue the fruit of the Spirit. 
pursue the love of God. Pursue joy in God. Pursue peace. Pursue gentleness and kindness. Ask yourself, what desires, what fruits are being born in your life? What are you seeing in the story that you're telling? What are those around you in Christian community seeing in the story you're telling? Are they seeing the deeds of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, or are they seeing the fruit of the Spirit? We must go to battle within. We must know that the enemy is inside of us. It's our fleshly nature. To live distinctly in this world, to tell a better story means we've got to do heart work. For God's sake. Well, you might say, well, okay, what about being in the world? Because we live in this world. Is it, should we just like go and form some sort of uh, community that's detached from the entire world? Let's just go you know, buy some acreage out in the middle of Michigan, nowhere, somewhere, nowhere, and just have a commune of Christians that just kind of detach from the world itself? Should we be, dare I say, it's like some sort of Amish community out there and just all alone and nobody will rub off on us and there will be no evil around us except for whatever we bring with us? Well, that's not how we live in the world. Peter here is not saying detach yourself, build up a fortress, just barricade yourself in and get in the bunker so that the world doesn't see you and you don't see it. He's saying you've got to starve the flesh itself, your flesh, but you've got to live in the world too. I mean, you've got a shop, you've got a job to do, you've got a world to live in, you have a family to raise, you, you have life to live here in this world. And so how do we do that and tell a distinctly Christian story? How do we do that and bear witness that Christ is our Savior, that we've been bought by him, that we are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession? How do we do that in the world? Well, verse 12 directs us towards that. The point would be this, win the battle outside. But friends, I would say there's not a battle outside. There is no war for us to fight, at least against other human beings. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the world, the nations, those who are not followers of Jesus. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is an interesting way of talking about it because Peter isn't saying go to war with the world. So put down your pitchforks. <laughs> put down your guns. We're not fighting humanity. We're not fighting one another. There's no battle with people here in mind. This is the way Paul talks about it. He says, well, there's spiritual battle. So in Ephesians chapter 6, he says and reminds us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. We're not to take up arms against image bearers of God, but we have a distinct way of living in this world. Notice here what Peter talks about. Keep your conduct, your way of life, your behavior, your attitude, your presence, who you are, the way you live. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And you just want to write in the world there so that you see. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. One word sums it up so well. With dignity, with honor. How do we act and live in this world? Honorably. 
The word here itself means meeting high standards or expectations of quality. It's beauty. It's value. It's excellence. It's notable. It's worthy. The word in Greek is the word kalos. Sam Storm says, kalos goes beyond the idea of moral goodness or ethical righteousness and includes the element of aesthetic worth and beauty. A goodness that commends itself to the beholder by its nobility and attractiveness. The word here that describes honorable is the way of saying your life should be lived such a way that it's notable and it's beautiful and it's even attractive, even perhaps contagious. That the world that as they see how you live, going to battle against the flesh within you and the fleshly passions of your heart and living honorably with your neighbor who may not be a believer living distinctly, living excellently, beautifully, compellingly. What does this do? If we live honorably in the world, don't mistake it to think that everything's going to be great. Like the world will just throw a parade for us and go, wow, what an honorable, what a beautiful, what a noble life. Like the world may have a problem with that. And Peter acknowledges that. He says, Keep your conduct among the world, the Gentiles, honorable, so that, and here's what's going to happen, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, I mean, Peter's a realist here about the world. The world will not like us as Christians. They didn't like them as Christians in the Roman Empire. We shouldn't think they should like us today. Our lives are distinct. But we should live honorably, not like the world, but distinct from the world, so that when they speak against us, when they call us intolerant or narrow-minded or bigoted, when they throw us out of the civic square, when they reject us, when they hold us at arm's length, they might bring glory to God. That's what he says later. Now, I want to note here very carefully, no Christian should be called an evildoer because they are a jerk. We're to live honorably. We don't get to have the posture of being rude and malicious and hate-filled towards other people in the world and then say, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're being a sinner. We get to live distinctly, honorably, nobly, so that even when they do call us evildoers, when they say things that aren't true, when they slander us, that our lives ethically are lived in such a way that the opponents see us and they notice and then Peter says, they glorify God on the day of visitation. That may happen. They may say, you're an evildoer now. But the day is coming when all of humanity will recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. All of humanity will say and drop the knee and confess the tongue. Christ is Lord. They'll all get it. And then they'll look at us as Christians who they slandered, who they maligned, and say, we got it wrong about you. Christ is king. We slandered you. The day will come with us keeping honorable conduct among ourselves and among the world will come when all people will glorify God on that day of visitation, when Christ returns again. By living honorably in the world now, we're praying for and living for another result in the lives of other believers, 
and, and non-believers, that they would see and worship and exalt Christ themselves. When you live honorably now, you commend Christ to the world. You adorn the gospel and say, it's beautiful, it's lovely, Christ is lovely, come to him. And our hope is that that would happen now in the lives of unbelievers. That as we live so honorably today, as we love our neighbor, as we serve them, as we sacrifice ourselves for them, as we lift up moral integrity and beauty and worth in the world, they would go, whoa, that's a different story than the one I'm seeing. That's a different story than the one I'm living. What's going on there? And we would have an opportunity to share the gospel with them, so much so that they would bow the knee to Christ here and now. Friends, that is the goal of our mission today, our hope. But that may not happen for everyone. That doesn't mean we stop living honorably now, but we keep living honorably, so much so that even if they slander us and speak as us as evildoers, when that day comes, they will glorify God and say, he is king, and, and you were right. Well, how do we do that? How do we live so honorably here in this world, so distinctly in this world, that even though they slander us, they're still gonna glorify God for it the last day? couple words I've been skipping here, that they may see your good deeds. That's where it comes down to. The world must see our good deeds. They must see our good works. Now, let me again make it very clear, the order here. Good works don't make us Christians. Doing good deeds does not give us God's love. They reveal, though, that we have been loved by God. They reveal that we are new people. And so a life of good works is essential to our witness as Christians. A life of good deeds is telling the story that we are a distinct people. We don't say in this world that we live in now, well, just let it burn. The world can go to hell in a handbasket. I'll, I'll wait it out. We work for the good of this world here and now. We're engaged in this world. We do good deeds. We participate in acts of righteousness and justice, doing good for every person as an honorable way of life. We don't neglect anybody. We serve. We humble ourselves. We sacrifice. We live good lives. We care for others so well that even though they say and slander, call us evildoers, not because we're doing evil, but because we're doing good, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. What a distinct story is being lived out here and called for. To be in the world, but not of the world. To, to tell the story of a gospel-transformed heart means we're going to battle internally. To say we're not perfect people and the passions of our flesh raise themselves up so we've got to fight them hard by the power of the Spirit. But out there in the world, we're living so differently, so well, so honorably that the world is watching our lives and some are seeing it and saying, God is glorious and he's good and I want to follow him. And some are seeing it and saying, no way. You're an evildoer. But everyone sees our good works and they glorify God. They praise him. So brothers and sisters this morning, how are you doing in this? Is, is your life just about yourself? Is it just a, a divine, not a divine, it's a demonic selfishness within you that this life and this world is all about me and my thing and what I want? 
Are you living a terrible Christian witness in the world because you're so selfish? Because you're feeding the passions of your flesh and not going to war and doing good deeds in the world? We must live lives of gospel excellence. People that are deeply committed to Christ. We're fighting our sin and living honorably in the world. Living morally excellent, honorable lives. I wasn't a scout, but I know that there was a conduct, a a code, if you will, among the scouts that went something like this. Leave it better than you found it. And that was something, uh, kind of a culture that I picked up from my my dad when uh, my brother and I would go camping. It's kind of the wilderness code. When you go to a campsite and you're the only ones there, you leave that campsite better than when you found it. Don't make a mess. Don't leave it in rough shape. What if that was the code of how we lived our lives ethically as followers of Jesus? What if that was the story that we were telling? Leave it better than when we found it. Leave the people that we interact with better than when we found them. Leave our communities better than than when we found them. Leave our church better than when we found it. I want to quote just in conclusion this morning from uh, this excellent book by Scott Sauls. He's a pastor in Nashville. It's called Irresistible Faith. I encourage you to pick it up. It is well worth your read as we think about our time in this world. But I want to read from him because he gives us a vision of what it could be. If we left it better than what we found it, what would that look like? Saul says, what if? What if in the spirit of Jesus providing wine at a wedding feast and the audacious forgiving father throwing a grand feast for the entire community, Christians became known for hosting hospitable, inclusive, and life-giving parties for friends, neighbors, colleagues, strangers, and strugglers? What if in the spirit of Paul, intelligently and winsomely engaging Greek academics with the truth of the gospel, Christians became known for engaging in thoughtful, enriching, challenging, and honoring discourse about God, humanity, and life? What if in the spirit of the early church's care and provision for vulnerable children and women, women experiencing the trauma and fear of an unplanned pregnancy began to think first of local churches, not local clinics, as comprehensively life-giving places of comfort, counsel, and care? What if in the spirit of Scripture's vision for marriage and sexuality, instead of condemning the world for its broken sexuality, Christians exemplified the beauty of biblical marriage by having biblical marriages, the countercultural kind in which mutual love, respect, and submission are tenderly shared between husbands and wives? What if the local church became the world's answer to loneliness and isolation? thereby becoming the life-giving alternative to social media-induced isolation and depression, soul-stealing pornography habits, body-exploiting hookups, non-committal cohabitations, and lonesome bar stools. What if? What if in the spirit of Scripture's vision for the integration of faith and work, Christians became known as the bosses everyone wants to work for, the colleagues everyone wants to work alongside, and the employees that everyone wants to hire. What if? 
What if in the spirit of Scripture's vision for doing justly and loving mercy, Christians became widely known as the world's first and most thorough responders whenever a friend, neighbor, colleague, or stranger experiences a tragedy such as divorce, unemployment, a crippling diagnosis, a loved one's death, or a rebellious child? What if? What if in the spirit of the Good Samaritan, Christians became widely known as those who rescue from danger, bandage wounds, and provide care and shelter to those who have been beaten, abandoned, and left for dead by the cruelty of human selfishness and greed? What if? What if in the of, spirit of Jesus' life and teaching, Christians became widely known not only as the best kinds of friends, but as the best kinds of enemies? Responding to persecution with prayer, to scorn with kindness, to selfishness with generosity, to offense with forgiveness, and to hatefulness with grace and love. What if, what if in the spirit of Jesus, Christians once again became known as those who welcome sinners and eat with them, such that the sinners began to say of Christians, I like them and I want to be like them. And what if, what if in the spirit of the early church, Christians once again began to enjoy the favor of all people, not because of how the, like the world they have become through assimilation and accommodation, but because of how unlike the world they have become through their lives of love and good deeds. What if Christians once again, collectively and comprehensively and universally lived with such compelling lives that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. What if? That's a noble and beautiful life. It's a testimony worth having. So brothers and sisters this morning, will we leave? Will we leave it better than we found it? Will we leave this world? Will we leave this day? Will we leave our conversations better than when we found them by embracing Jesus and going to battle against our sin and living so honorably that the world may see our good deeds and glorify God. Let's be that people by the grace of God and for his glory. Let's let that be our story. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are loved in Christ. That you have shown us your grace. We thank you for calling in this world to be not of this world, even though we are here in it, but to be distinct and to live so honorably among the world that even though they slander us as evildoers, they will give glory to you on the day of visitation. Lord, make our lives a compelling testimony, a compelling story, an honor to your name. Where we have been wrong, Lord, we receive this morning the Spirit's correction. May we live in repentance and grow in the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for your word. Help us, we pray, by your Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.